right. Take your Bibles and turn with me to the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 23, beginning at verse 44. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. And already you know exactly what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the most darkest day in all of history. It may not be the darkest day in all of history when thousands of, um, thousands of military men were killed in battle. It's not a Dunkirk. It's not uh, a darkest day because it affected every single person on the face of the earth because of some calamity. But it's the darkest day on the face of the earth. And the symbolism here is pretty clear because the Son of God is being put to death. In verse 45, Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, jump down to verse 50. Now, behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and just man. He had not consented to the decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in linen and laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. I want to focus in on Joseph for just a moment or two. But let me begin by whetting your appetite with this illustration from the life of Abraham Lincoln. During the darkest days of the Civil War, when the hopes of the Union surviving were very, very uh, dismal, and people wondered whether we would ever survive. And you can imagine the Civil War when it isn't a war overseas, it's a war here in the United States of America, which still has, has the most casualties of any war that's ever been fought here uh, on this planet for us as a nation. You can imagine that maybe five, five uh, miles down the road, the armies are meeting together and people are dying. Well, it was during the hopelessness of the Union surviving this that, and, and, and the inability to reach the goals uh, that the military had established to keep the Union together that leaders would come, routinely come to President Abraham Lincoln for guidance, for a glimmer of hope, something they could hear from the president that would encourage them. So at one time, a delegation of people came to the White House, and they came with a detailed long list of their crises as they were dealing with the Civil War. And Lincoln told this story. Years ago, a young friend and I were out one night when a shower of meteors fell from the clear November sky. 
The young man was frightened. But as Abraham Lincoln said, I told him to look up into the sky past the shooting stars to the fixed stars beyond. There they are shining serenely in the firmament. And I said, quote, let us not mind the meteors, but let us keep our eyes on the stars. When you read through the Gospels, that's exactly what I'm hoping is going to happen. When you look at everything that's going on around us today, I'm hoping that you and I are going to keep our eyes on the stars and not on the meteors. And one of those stars is the security of knowing that God has established His kingdom. God is going to establish it here on this earth one day. It is presently in our hearts. It begins there. And hopefully, it will help us through our darkest days, whatever they may be. National, personal, whatever. And so... We have a couple of comments here, observations that I would like to make in relationship to Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible tells us in this passage of Scripture that Joseph of Arimathea was one of those guys who was looking for and waiting for the kingdom of God. And this had to have sustained him through these darkest days, and here is why, okay? Number one, the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 23 that Joseph of Arimathea, verse 50, was a council member. That means he was a part of the government. That means that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was one of those guys who met regularly with the Sanhedrin to determine what was going to happen to this new man, this new prophet, this new leader, this new teacher. I mean, the Sanhedrin was a group of people who were totally aware of Jesus and every move he made. They were spying on him all the time. And in their spying upon him, they were building a case against him. But Josephus was not insulated from the truth of who Jesus really was. He was not insulated from that. The Bible tells us, number two, that he was not only a council member, but he was a good and just man. And I prefer to look at that a little differently. I mean, his reputation is impeccable. When you would go to Josephus as a council member, you didn't have to stand there and wonder whether he was going to lie through his teeth with, with you or to you. When you, went to, when you went to Joseph, I keep saying Joseph, it's Joseph. When you went to Josephus, as a, and talk to him about uh, government issues. Uh, he was going to be fair-minded with you. He was going to be honest with you. And he was going to be godly in his responses. That's the reputation he had. And I have to, I have to believe that Joseph knew all about the bad things that were being said about Jesus. But Joseph also knew the truth about Jesus as well. And that his heart, his heart was in the right place because as Jesus gave that parable of the sower, and I, I assume that these words changed his life. 
when Jesus gave the parable of the sower and, and Joseph heard about that, Jesus talked about four soils, the hard soil, the soil where there's rock, the soil where there's, where there's uh, briars and, and there's uh, uh, weeds growing up and the, and the seed can't grow very well and there's soil that is good soil. And I believe that, that Joseph's heart was prepared for the truth of God's word, was prepared for the truth of who Jesus was and what he was all about. And so the condition of Joseph's, Joseph's heart was in the right place. And he was prepared for Jesus to say in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are humble, for theirs is the kingdom, everybody together, of God. Now, an example of how this worked out in Joseph's life is imagine the week of Jesus's ministry where he was arrested and he was put on trial. And he was tried and he was put to death. Imagine that week for a minute. And Joseph got to hear a lot of things said about the Lord. And we have in our Bibles abbreviated transcripts of Jesus' trial. And uh, for instance, uh, here in Luke, we have a couple of verses that describe the trial of Jesus. And then in Matthew and Mark, we have bigger, bigger transcripts of the trial of Jesus. But I want you to try to put yourself in Joseph's shoes for just a moment and imagine what was going through his head when he was dealing with all of the conniving and all of the scheming and, and all of the secret meetings that were going on until finally they got together to put Jesus to death. The Bible says that Joseph was from the city of Arimathea. And what does it say in this passage of Scripture about the city of Arimathea? Who lived in the city of Arimathea? The Jewish people lived in the city of Arimathea. So this is not a, this is not a, uh, a mixed city, so to speak. It's a, it's a small town north of the city of Jerusalem. And it's a small town that's filled with Jewish people. And every day when Jew, jo Joseph would get up and he'd go to work and, and, and everything, he would meet his Jewish neighbors. And so you and I have to understand that the pressure is great. And since he is a, a member of the government... You can imagine that the pressure on his is enormous when they began to plot against Jesus, betray Jesus, arrest Jesus, and then put him on trial. Now, I, uh, I have a great resource at home and uh, was put out by Tyndall House, and it's a, it's a book full of charts. And I have three charts in that book on Jesus' trial. I was going to read the transcript of his trial from Matthew, but I'll spare you that because we have a couple of other passages of Scripture to look at before we close here. But the first chart talks about Jesus' trial with these simple words. After Judas singled Jesus out for arrest, the mob took Jesus first to Caiaphas, the high priest. This trial, a mockery of justice, 
ended at daybreak with their decision to kill him. But the Jews needed the Romans' permission for the death sentence. And so Jesus was taken to Pilate, then he was taken to Herod, the king, and then he was taken back to Pilate, the Roman governor, and then he was sentenced to death. I'm reading this to you because I can read it in two minutes. It would take me ten minutes to just explain it to you. Jesus' trial was actually a series of hearings carefully controlled to accomplish the death of Jesus. The verdict was predecided, but certain legal procedures were necessary. A lot of effort went into condemning and crucifying an innocent man. Jesus went through an unfair trial in our place, and I love this statement, un totally unrelated at the moment, but Jesus went through an unfair trial in our place so that we would not have to face a fair trial and receive the well-deserved punishment that all of us deserve because of our sins. And I really say that to you because we commend Joseph for his actions, not understanding that behind all of that is God's plan, that is far deeper than that. But we do commend Joseph because the Bible tells us that he did not consent to their decision and he did not consent to their deed. Can you imagine when the Sanhedrin met, this trial of Jesus was illegal in so many ways. It was illegal because there was no innocent until proven guilty approach. It was illegal because it was filled with false witnesses who couldn't agree. It was illegal because there was no defense for Jesus sought or allowed. It was illegal, and this is off the chart. It was illegal because the trial was conducted at night. It was rushed. It was hasty. It was illegal because they incriminated him for his statements rather than trying to get the truth from him. And it was illegal because the cases involving such serious charges were to be tried only in the high council's regular meeting place, not in the high priest's home. The religious leaders were not interested in giving Jesus a fair trial. In their minds, Jesus had to die. The blind obsession led them to pervert the justice they were appointed to protect according to their own laws. I share that with you because I want you to imagine Joseph sitting in that council the night Jesus is arrested. Hearing all of the hasty remarks, hearing all of the all of the incriminating things, hearing all about the plot to take Jesus, hearing all about the false witnesses, and you can read those in those transcripts in the other Gospels, specifically Matthew and Mark. And when the vote comes, Joseph says, no. When the vote comes, shall we kill Jesus? Joseph says, no. And I can imagine that he questioned their intentions. He in questioned their preconceived notions. He questioned the railroading of Jesus into this position so that he can be crucified. 
he probably questioned every single one of these illegal proceedings. But in the end, when it came down to his vote, the Bible says he did not consent to their decision and deed. Now, Joseph trusted the God of the Old Testament. We know he trusted the God of the Old Testament because he was what? Waiting for, what does it say in this passage of Scripture? He was waiting for the kingdom of God. Can you imagine that during Joseph's three years in his interaction with Jesus, whether he heard Jesus personally or not, or he was receiving information from those who did hear Jesus. Can you imagine, Joseph, can you imagine all of those years, uh, what he was learning uh, about Jesus as far as the kingdom of God was concerned? Because for the Jewish people of the Old Testament, waiting for the Messiah was literally waiting for the kingdom of God to be established. And I can imagine that there are some passages of Scripture that would mean a lot, of, a lot to Joseph. For instance, in Luke chapter 13, and if you have your Bible, I do encourage you to turn to a couple of verses here. In Luke chapter 13, I imagine his ears would have perked up when he would have heard these words of Jesus. Where it begins in verse 22, and we referred to this last week. That he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. That refers to Jesus. And one of them said to the Lord, Are there few who are saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and will not be able. And then in verse 25, Jesus says, When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door... And you begin to stand outside and knock on the door and you say, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. He will answer and say to you, I don't know you. Where are you from? And then you will begin to say, well, we ate and drank with you. You came to our country and you lived among us. And you were in our streets teaching and Jesus will say to them in verse 27, I tell you, I do not know you where you are from. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. And I really believe that those words would have really sparked Joseph's interest, especially with what Jesus says next. Because in verse 28 and 29, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham... Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and yourselves thrust out. Now, the average religious person in that day would have been terrified to hear those words. You're telling me that there is the danger that I'm not going to make it into the kingdom of God, but Abraham will be there, Isaac will be there, Jacob will be there, and all the prophets will be there. And I imagine that Joseph personalized that. 
you know, there's a possibility that I'll miss it when Abraham will make it. In verse 29, they will come from the east. That's not bad enough. They will come from the east and from the west. We live in the west, right? They will come from the north and come from the south. And everybody together, they will sit down in the kingdom of God. A man comes to Jesus after he talks about this great wedding feast in chapter 14 and how people are going to miss it with the great supper parable that comes next. So I'm just combining the, the, the elements of those two passages of Scripture where this one man who was sitting at the table with the Lord after he was invited to this dinner engagement says to the Lord in verse 15, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Which leads Jesus into the parable of the great supper and how many people will make it and some people will make it, but many people will not make it. If you'll turn over in your Bible to the Last Supper, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. And the Bible tells us he has the 12 disciples there in chapter 22, verses 14 and following. Jesus says, I've desired to have this Passover with you. It's a big Passover celebration, but with its somber moments because Jesus is about to be crucified. In verse 16, he says, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And then he took the cup and gave thanks, and then he took the bread. And he said, For I say to you, in verse 18, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And I just want you to see verses 29 and 30 of the same chapter when the disciples are talking later that evening and they're discussing certain things and, and they get into a little bit of an argument. I want you to know what Jesus says to his disciples in verse 29. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my Father bestowed one upon me, that you may, what? Everybody together, eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and of course to them, and sit on the thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And by the way, these verses of Scripture addressed to the disciples are not just addressed to them, but they're addressed to all of us. I used to say, well, you know, you got special privileges for the disciples there, but what's my status going to be in the kingdom of God? I guess I'm going to be a lowly peasant kid. Uh, I used to think that. But Jesus, remember, remember when the disciples came to Jesus and they said to him, uh, uh, they talked about John the Baptist, and Jesus said, there's nobody greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than John the Baptist. The whole point is that you and I are going to be equally honored you and I are going to be equally bestowed with honor and blessing and um, in the kingdom of God. And we will all get to sit and eat at the Lord's table. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that exciting? Well, you remember that Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Simeon, back when Jesus was born, was waiting for the kingdom of God. And when Jesus was brought to the temple to be presented to the Lord, you'll remember that Simeon said, oh, now I can, I can go in peace. I've been waiting all my life for this event. And you'll remember that Anna was there too. And the same thing was said about Anna. Now, I bring this to your attention because so far, when we talk about the kingdom of God, we're talking about something that doesn't look like it's happened yet. 
But listen, the kingdom of God is not only something that's coming. Jesus is coming back and he's establishing his kingdom. But the kingdom of God has already been set up. You know that, don't you? And the thing that you and I need to do is make sure that we are a part of the kingdom of God right now. Because the kingdom of God begins in the heart. Look at chapter 13 of Luke. I mean, chapter 17 of Luke, okay? I want to I just bring this to your attention because I really think that Joseph was probably very impressed with the words of Jesus when he either heard about it or was there to hear them himself. When the Bible says in chapter 20 of Luke, verse 20 of Luke 17, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said... The kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. Nor will they say, see here and see there. For indeed, what does Jesus say in verse 21? The kingdom of God, what? Is within you. And I bring that to your attention because we're all looking for the physical reign of Christ. We're looking for him to establish his kingdom on this earth. And when Jesus said... When he said in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's referring to, obviously, to the coming of Christ, but it's also referring to something else. And that is that the kingdom of God can be established in our hearts before it is physically set up in this world. It has to be established in our hearts first. It must be established in our hearts first. And uh, so, here's, here's what he says. I'm, I'm just going to give it to you briefly, okay? There are a lot of myths about the kingdom of God. And one of, those, one of those myths is that you can establish exactly when it's going to happen. The Bible does not teach that we can establish when it's going to happen. The Bible suggests that there are certain signs but these signs wax and wane and have done that all through history for the most part. I guess when you see all of them happening at the same time, you'll say, well, I guess the kingdom of God is coming. But still, you can't say exactly when. And here's why Jesus says you can't do it. You can't do it because here the disciples in verse 22 says, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look here and look there. Do not go after them or follow them. He's reinforcing this idea that we don't want to perpetuate this myth. And why does Jesus say you and I can't establish exactly why Jesus is coming? What does he say in verse 24? What illustration does he use in verse 24? What's the illustration? Lightning. Right? Isn't that what he says? He says, for as the lightning that flashes out of one part of the heaven and shines to the other part under heaven, and it happens just like that, just like that, so will the coming of the Son of Man. That is too quick for us to establish when it's going to happen. Way too quick. We can't do it. It's impossible for us to do it. There's so many myths. I love, I love the Gospels because they deal with all these myths. They deal with the myth that Jesus is never coming and establishes a kingdom on this earth. He is. They deal with the fact, they deal with the, the idea that children are too young to be a part of the, or, or to be a part of the kingdom of God, and, and that's not true, and that's not true. And there are other myths too, 
But what's the second illustration he uses in verse 26? As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the Son of Man. Why? Because what are they going to be doing? What did they do during Noah's day? They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were giving in marriage, and life was pretty much normal for them until the day the rain started. Too quick. That's not the only, he gives another illustration. He gives the illustration of Lot in verse 29. On the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it was a beautiful sunny morning. The sun came up as usual. Everything happened just exactly the, the way everybody expected. Life was normal. People had their breakfast. People went to work. And the Bible says, on that day, God rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. And then if we didn't get it, notice what he says in verse 30. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. I, I think Joseph probably really, really perked up with passages of Scripture like this. And, and I'll, bet, I'll bet there's another one that he really perked up with. And that was the one where in, in chapter 18... In chapter 18, the myth that rich people can't go to heaven or can't be a part of the kingdom of God. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, pastor. Well, that's a myth. It is a myth. The Bible doesn't say rich people can't be saved. The Bible says it's hard. It's hard because they're trusting their riches. But you'll remember that when the rich young ruler comes to Jesus in chapter 18, verses 18 and following... And Jesus shares what he needs to do, and he goes away sorrowfully because he had much. He was very rich in verse 23. You'll remember that it upset the disciples so badly that they sat down with Jesus afterwards, and they said to Jesus, then um, how can anybody be saved? Who can be saved then if, if that's the way it is? And what did Jesus say in verse 27? The things which are impossible with men, everybody together, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. I believe that that really hit a spot in Joseph's heart. Why? Why do I say that? I say that because even though Luke doesn't say this, Matthew says it, Mark says it, or Matthew specifically says it, or John, Matthew... This is a big deal because Joseph is mentioned in all four Gospels, and we have about nine elements in his life that we put together. But what does the Bible say about Joseph? Joseph was a very rich man. And he took the body of Jesus and put the body of Jesus in his own new tomb that was cut out into the rock that had never been used. So you can see why a passage of Scripture would mean a lot to Joseph, this rich man from Arimathea, who really came to know Christ, the truth of Christ, in a world, in, a, in an atmosphere where the government, the religious leaders, were constantly plotting to destroy, through falsehood, the ministry of Jesus. Imagine that. Now, if you see any coincidence between that and today, it's merely coincidence. I'm only, I'm only doing it because you and I can, we can, we can feel for the Lord. And we can feel for Joseph under the circumstances. 
But Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Right? Doesn't the Bible say Joseph was a disciple of Jesus? Let's go back to Matthew. When the Bible tells us that Joseph comes to get the body of Jesus in 57 of chapter 27 of Matthew, the Bible says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. Matthew chapter 27, verse 57. Who himself had also, what? Become a disciple of Jesus. I, you know, I, you know I, I can't wait to talk to Joseph about this when we sit down with the Lord in his kingdom. I just, I, there's, I'm just dying to ask Joseph some questions. And one of the questions I'm, ask, I'm concerned to ask him is how important was his trust in the God of Israel and, and the God of the Bible, the Old Testament scriptures, how important that was to him. Because I think he's going to say to me, he's going to say to me, he's going to say, I, I, it was because of my commitment and my willingness to live by the Old Testament scriptures that I got saved. I think he's going to say that. We know that he loved the Old Testament scriptures because he was waiting for the coming of the Messiah. And the important thing about this is that anybody who was waiting for the coming of the Messiah understood that the Old Testament was giving us bits and pieces of information about it until finally by the time you get to the end of the Old Testament, we have a pretty big picture of what God is going to do to bring His kingdom on earth. Josephus, uh, Joseph, rather, I'm sorry. Joseph came to know Christ. The kingdom of God was established in his heart. And you and I will see him in the kingdom of God and eat with him. He had a helper that night. I'm just merely mentioning it to you because that's a sermon for another day. He had a helper that night when he took the body off the cross and prepared the body and put it in the tomb. Does everybody know who it was? Does anybody know who it was? It was Nicodemus. Who came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. And also defended Jesus when he was being railroaded in John chapter 7. But let me close with an illustration that <clears throat> I would like to work it in. But I just, I just want to show you how, I just want you to understand how valuable and how important it is for us to stay grounded in God's word. So that we understand that we are. God's children by our faith in Christ and that we can look beyond the meteors to the, to the stars. So my illustration is pretty simple. There was a guy at 17 years of age. I, the name is here, but I don't recognize him. He's, it's just to prove the truth of the story. And he left his Scottish home when he was 17 and went to college and his mother gave him a Bible and she wrote his name in the Bible and then wrote a verse of scripture in the front of the Bible and wrote many verses throughout the Bible. But 
His mother gave him that Bible. He went to college, and unfortunately, like what happens to a lot of people at college, a lot of kids at college, is we squander our time, and we squander our opportunities, and we don't do well. And um, he went a, even a totally different direction. He slid downhill so far that at the point, at one point, he took his Bible, went down, and sold it to get some money to buy some whiskey. But his mother kept praying for him, praying until she died. And eventually, this boy became a doctor. He eventually became a doctor, worked in a hospital, and he was dealing with a dying patient who kept repeatedly saying to him, I need my book, I need my book. Could you get me my book? And the doctor, he didn't know what he meant, and he died. And so this doctor then searched the hospital room to find out what book it was that, he, that seemed so important to him. And to his surprise, he found out that it was a copy of the Bible, and it was actually the very Bible that he had pawned for whiskey so many years before. He took the Bible to his office, stared at the familiar writing of his mother, and thumbed through the pages, reading the verses that his mother had underscored. And after doing that, for hours, he became a Christian. He came to Christ. And that Bible became the most precious possession he ever owned. When the thief was hanging on the cross and Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commend your spirit, the thief who was trusting Christ at that point had said, You know, Lord, when you come into your kingdom... Down the road from now, when you come into your kingdom, will you, will you include me? And Jesus said to that thief on the cross, I'll not only include you, but I'll make you this promise. You'll be with me in paradise today. Today. We need to live in paradise today. Because the kingdom of God begins within us, we need to live in paradise today. Amen. And so my encouragement to you is that if you and I look at the darkest day in history and can take a man like Joseph and look at his life and, and his whole participation in all of this, it ought to be an encouragement to us. But, but think about this. God's word had to be precious to him in order for him to have come to the conclusions that he reached. Amen. And so, Father, we pray in your precious name. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to get out of this passage of Scripture and this illustration the things that would encourage us to not look at the meteors, but to look at the stars behind them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.